Good evening. It's a pleasure to join your retreat this early summer day. And it's beautiful to come in the room and just feel your presence in your energy. And it actually looks like there's twice as many people in here as there are because all of these yoga mats are out. I'm wondering, well, where are all the other people who sit on those mats? So. And I think before anything else, I want to offer my deep bow to you as teachers and carriers of the Dharma to the world, which is a really beautiful, extraordinary, and amazing thing to do. So it's quite wonderful to, to meet with you um, as teachers as you are. So. And before I say anything else, because it feels important in coming into a retreat or a group, um, rather than just kind of swooping in and saying, okay, you know, here's the, here's the way it is, um, to hear a little bit from you, even for <clears throat> a couple of minutes, of topics or things that you would hope I might touch on or speak to. And um, I generally like to be quite honest and open-minded, and there's probably not a topic you could name that I would not want on the table, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and what we do with them, we'll see, because I have a, what I'd like to do, I have a kind of Dharma talk and presentation for you and a practice for us to do and then some dialogue. But it would help me to know what interests you. And you kind of know, probably know more about me than I know about you. You know, you at least know that I've been teaching for a lot of years and I've been around. I remember when they were writing the Vedas, you know, and <clears throat> stuff like that. I've seen all those swamis and lamas and mamas and rimbaches from A to Z. So anyway, please, questions, topics, themes. Practice in relationship. I could ask you why you ask that, but I won't, okay? <laughs> Thank you, it's a great topic. Others, please. Of making suffering as a vehicle or having some other way? Well, well being able to get around that as the only alternative mm -hmm. when you're working with others. Okay, that's a fabulous question. Thank you. Others or topics? Please. Working with loss. Working with loss. Thank you. So, family, relatives, relationship in terms of spiritual life, is that, or? Yeah, 
Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> Great. Uh-huh. You know, when the Buddha went home to his parents, he had a hard time. And when Jesus went back, he had a really tough time with his mom. I just want you to bear this in mind so that you get sort of the drift of how it works, okay? So, it's a great topic, thank you. A couple more. Yes? Pain in the body. Body pain. And something about body pain? It seems that with my yoga students, um, I instruct them to to not, you know, not really um, go to the painful place or not go to the hard painful place, whereas in sitting, we're instructed to just be with mm. and not to shift our position or move around. Mm. So the use of body pain and the misuse of it and yeah. sitting and so forth. Thank you. Yes, please. I personally have experienced yoga, the asana practice of yoga interrelating with your meditation practice. Okay. Asana and meditation, personally. Thank you. A couple more. The female figures, like Prajnaparamita up there, and maybe some more recent ones. Yeah, thank you. Um, on retreat or even uh, on, on the mat or on the cushion at home, you may have some marvelous moments where you really appreciate the beautiful moment. How do you relate from that knowing that you have, when you know that you have some highly unpleasant moments in, in your future, and there's sort of no way around those. <laughs> and you do, that's true. You will. Yeah, so how do you take from, what do you do from that place of pleasant and bliss to knowing that something else is coming? Yeah, thank you. Yes, please. Using this work to tap into the unconscious. Can you say one more thing about that? Well, I think a lot of us operate on an unconscious level at certain times. And how can this work? So how to make the unconscious more conscious in a certain way. Okay, we'll be here for all night, (laughs) at least. I will try to weave some of these in at least, and then we'll have some question time too, as best I can. So the first thing I want to do is maybe to speak for, I don't know, 40 minutes or so it looks like, if that's all right, to you, and then do a practice, and then we'll have some conversation. Um, And one of the reasons that I bow to you, and I really bow to everyone who carries the holy dharma, the dharma of awakening in all its myriad forms, um, is because it's something that the world so needs. Um, And here you are in this position as yoga teachers and really as teachers and carriers of awakening um, to touch the lives of people and remind them who they are, remind them of this great mystery. And the world needs it desperately because without awakening, we will have continuing environmental destruction, continuing racism, continuing warfare, all these enormous human-caused forms of suffering 
which come out of forgetting who we are and what our connection is with life itself. So it's a, a, a big, challenging, you know, enormous task in some way. Um, and at the same time, it is the medicine of consciousness. It is the medicine of the Dharma that is the um, medicine of healing for the world. And I don't mean that in a small sense, that whether it's yoga or Buddhism, but awakening of consciousness itself. And you are part of that. And it's a very beautiful thing. Now, in, in uh, recent months, the official Chinese government news agency issued a statement last July that the Ministry of Religious Affairs had created new departmental guidelines for overseeing the process and selection of new lamas in the Tibet Autonomous Region starting in last August, and that these governmental guidelines were an important step forward in the proper management of reincarnation. So that's one view of the world, right? The governmental view, if you will. Um, but a much more profound view, which is what your work is, our work together, is to awaken people to the mystery of incarnation. Because here you are in these human bodies, as I like to say, with a little bit of fur at one end. In my case, the fur is kind of diminishing fur in a few other places, you know, these limbs that have the wiggly things at the end, you know, with little claws that are left, not very effective, but they're there, right? Um, bipedal motion, where you lean, when you ambulate in this particular incarnation, you lean one way and you fall that direction, you catch yourself, and you fall the other way and you catch yourself, and it's bizarre. Or these things, look, you know, the globes that see or the stuff that sticks out, these kind of, mine are pretty big, these um, flaps of flesh with a curly cue, or the whole one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals every day, and grind them up with these bones and glug glug them down through the tube. How did you get in there? That's my question. I mean, who do you think you are? And this is, uh, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm making it humorous because the, I'll, I'll do some little pedagogical asides, if I may, to you. Um, one Tibetan Lama watched me teach, and he said, oh, you make them laugh, and then you pop the pill of wisdom in when their mouths are open. <laughs> because laughter is disarming in a way. It means that we can step back and see ourselves in some more, less serious, less frightened way. But the point of all the work that we do, and the point of yoga, Buddhism, and, and so forth, is to return us to our true nature, to an original wholeness or goodness, original freedom, to empower each being, all those that you touch, to remember who they are and to, to remember that they are free no matter what the circumstances. So if you read, for example, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha says, not merit, nor good deeds, nor meditative states, nor concentration, nor insight and understanding. None of these is the goal of the spiritual path. Not even samadhi or insight, none of that. Nor their absence, he says, but one thing, the sure heart's release, the beautiful translation, the sure heart's release, the liberation of the heart and mind, 
This is the essence, the goal, the purpose of all of the forms of practices that we do, the 108,000 forms of practices. And that really returns us back to what is timeless, what is eternal. Because the point is not so much just the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Without that presence of eternity, we are, we are lost. Um, the Buddha talks about this as the eternal freedom. And when you meet it in a being, in yourself, you know it. It's what allowed Nelson Mandela to walk out of 27 years in prison in Robben Island and torture with such magnanimity and dignity and graciousness and compassion that it could change the whole of South Africa and really much of the world. Or Aung San Suu Kyi, who stays in 17 years in her house arrest. This little person, just my age, but way smaller than me, you know, who carries a, a lamp in her, a spirit, that is so true and so free that she becomes the, the light, the luminosity f that reflects in the hearts of 50 million Burmese people and keeps them going. And this is what's meant by freedom. The freedom to choose your spirit no matter what the circumstance. The freedom that you're born with, your own true nature. And it's a freedom beyond birth and death. I was just teaching with Thich Nhat Hanh and he talked about how he was in this monastery in North Vietnam as a young monk and received the news that his, no, no, I guess that his mother had died the year before and he said, that day that my mother died, I wrote in my journal, a terrible misfortune has undertaken my life. Because he really loved his mother and he was a young man. And he said, I grieved for a whole year, terribly. And then one day, one night, full moon night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was called to walk out in the tea plantation. And as I walked slowly between the tea plants, this bright moonlight was caressing my cheeks and going across this vast hillside and landscape. And all of a sudden, the moonlight was my mother caressing my cheeks. And I realized, he said, as I began to weep, that my mother had never died, that, the, that she was with me as surely as when she was in her body, and that that moonlight was her touch. And I could feel her touch and feel her presence. And I knew in that moment that there was no death, that death was just an idea that we had, that we carry, and I was free. This is called in the Sutra of the Buddha's Awakening, to see with the eye of wisdom. And in the beautiful text of the Sutta Nipata, which is the oldest of all the Buddhist texts, the most archaic language, the Buddha speaks of this kind of liberation that's not about a form of practice, but he says such things as, no one is purified by any philosophy or point of view. Those who are devoted to philosophy run from one teacher to the other. But the wise are not led by such desires. They do not embrace anything in the world as being higher than anything else. They do not form any view that says, I am this way or I am that. 
they rest in the reality of life as it is, and thus they are free. Or for one who is there no desire for some other place or some other thing, for one who does not form any view in the world about the way things should be or what is proper and what is improper in the teachings, not representing themselves as either equal to others or lower or higher. In such a one there is not the least prejudiced idea toward what has been seen or heard or thought. How could anyone in the world alter such a being who does not adopt a single view? They are free in their hearts from all manner of tyranny. And these are kind of amazing statements. It goes on, this is all in this, this most archaic scripture. And it's beautiful. And what's beautiful about it is that the Buddha is encountering people and saying, you are free. You can be free and you are free. And if you read in Patanjali, where's the Patanjali I brought here? It really starts with the same truth. You know, the first shuras of it, the first shlokas, the shuras are actually the word for the Quran, but we'll you know, mix them up because they are the same in some fundamental way, the holy books. They're books. Yoga is the release from the fluctuations of consciousness, one translation says. First line. Then the seer abides in his or her essence. Here's Patanjali saying, this is the whole practice, to shift from the fluctuations, and he names the different ones, you know what they are, the kinds of hindrances and difficulties and perceptions and opinions, like the Buddha was talking about. The release from these fluctuations brings us back to our true self, our true nature. The release from these fluctuations is achieved through practice, and dispassion, which I would also say is practice and discipline. A kind of dispassion really means a kind of discipline. Or if you find yourself on the battlefield in the Bhagavad Gita, and you are, you're in the battle between the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> <clears throat> between the capitalists and the socialists. You're in the battle between um, modernity and a kind of traditional deep knowledge of indigenous wisdom of India and other places. You are on the battlefield. You're in the battlefield between birth and death. And there's Arjuna standing there with Krishna. And it begins with his Krishna's sorrow my kinsmen arrayed for battle, my limbs are weak, my mouth parched, my body trembles, my hair stands upright, my skin burning, the bow Gandiva slips from my hand. I can hardly see, O Krishna. I mean, this is our human dilemma, the dilemma of duality. And then it goes on, Krishna speaks to Arjuna about his sorrows, and Krishna says, your words are wise, Arjuna, but your sorrow is for nothing. The truly wise mourn neither the living nor the dead, for there never was a time when I did not exist 
nor you nor any of these kings, nor is there any future in which we shall cease to be. And here is Krishna speaking to Arjuna and with the same insight that Thich Nhat Hanh had out in the, in the tea plantation um, of that which is beyond birth and death. Know who you really are in this battle or you are lost. But then there's that, there's that very interesting phrase in, the, in Patanjali, and it's really the same in the Buddhist text, you know, where Patanjali says, the release from these fluctuations, from these kilashas it's described in other ways, all these entanglements and delusions is achieved through practice and dispassion or discipline. And in fact, all the different forms of practice of yoga and meditation, yogas and meditations, Buddhist, Hindu, and so forth, are about release from the small sense of self, the body of fear, and opening or awakening to who we really are. And there are lots of practices. Now the old style, and India is full of it, you know this and it relates to the questions that were asked tonight. The old style, for the most part, um, kind of the Stone Age approach to spirituality in a certain way, is that there's kilatious, greed, hatred, delusion. And in the monasteries where I trained, man, you did battle with the glaciers. It was like the warrior thing. Somebody was asking about the feminine, and admittedly there are feminine warriors just try, you know, going through labor to give birth to a child, and you'll understand that. Um, but the old style was to do battle with your impurities. And we tried that. We brought that back from, you know, Burma and Thailand and Indian stuff in our own community and discipline for a long time. Um, and it fits with a kind of dualism in India that you know. White rice is purer than brown rice. White sugar is better than brown sugar. White clothing is better, you know. The top of the head is higher. The feet are pretty low and the genitals are getting down there, quite honestly, you know. And it's, Indian culture is actually really quite dualistic. It is, terribly. So there's the Advaita, there's the non-dual parts. But a lot of Indian culture is incredibly dualistic. It's also profoundly racist. And part of what made it that way was the Brahmins who are um, really the Aryans, and Hitler used that and distorted it, but the Aryans who came down from north and took over what was the Dravidian part of India, the darker-skinned people, and in a certain way colonized it. Said, okay, you guys are the low caste, we're the high class, we're the light-skinned, you're the dark-skinned. Um, and um, part of the basis of the practice that we learn has that stuff in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? And we have to awaken and see that for what it is, because it doesn't work anymore in this way. It honestly doesn't. And one of the most important things that we've learned over years of teaching meditation, decades, is that in our culture, there's already so much dualism and there's already so much unworthiness and self-hatred and, and self-judgment and grasping for some enlightenment that's as if it were in the Himalayas or somewhere else, that when you bring that dualism into your yoga teaching, it becomes actually... Um, it potentizes 
the unworthiness and the grasping, and it becomes more toxic for people. And I use that word quite literally. Does this make sense to you? And modern India is really ambivalent about this stuff, because on one hand you have Kanjuraho with all these incredible tantric figures and everybody having a good time sexually, tantrically, or whatever it is, in every position imaginable and with every kind of being. And on the other hand, India is one of the most prudish cultures you could ever enter. And they kind of really don't know which, you know, who they are. This is really, so this is that kind of dualism that's there. And I'm telling you these things not so much because they're true, although some of them are, but because I want you to step back and look at what you're doing and what your purpose and how you're teaching. I'm raising the, these as questions as much as telling you something. And I want to speak to you in a mature way. This has been going on since before the time of the Buddha. Buddha was only 2,500 years ago. There were two streams in India before the Buddha, the Shramanic and the Brahmanic. There was no Hinduism at the time of the Buddha. The two streams, the Shramanic means the yogic tradition, which was the mystical tradition, and that goes back thousands of years. And then the Brahmins, who were the priestly tradition, who did it by caste and ritual and mantra, and you know they were the intermediaries, they were the Catholic priests of India in some way. If you want to get to God, you know, we'll pour some ghee on the fire and say some sacred mantras and things like that, and we're higher than you and we're closer to God and we can help you. Um, and there was a certain investment in that corporation, if you will. Um, and those two were in conflict and have been for 5,000 years. And they weave together, not always in conflict. There are parts where they serve one another. But this is just giving you a sense of the, the weaving of duality in Indian culture for a long time that you inherit when you take in the yogic tradition or the Buddhist tradition. Now the thing is that we do the same damn thing here in America. We have our church over here for spirituality and the marketplace for business and the gym for the body, or now it's the yoga slash gym class, right? You know how that goes, right? And medicine we put in clinics and hospitals and we separate the spiritual out, the sacred, from these other places. And yoga has become divided in the same way. I don't need to tell you that. You know that, I mean, it's sort of glamour body yoga, right? good abs, you know, I mean, or how do we look in our spandex or whatever. I mean, you all know that better than I. And I'm trying to talk to you informally and yet at the same time from some place of um, understanding that you can see or question or look for yourself. Now your task, because you already know the deeper meaning of yoga, or you wouldn't be here. And in fact, it's not just that you're here, but everybody knows it, even the most kind of shallow yoga teacher, somewhere underneath does know it, you know, because it's part of our birthright. You do know that the point of it all is not what asana your body's in, or what kind of pranayama, or what kind of yogic state you can get in as somebody asks, well, what do you do after the yogic state when you go back home to your family or relationship and so forth? The point is, can we remember, can we re reconnect with who we really are, with our true nature, our Buddha nature, uh, a fundamental freedom and compassion that is the, 
the pure consciousness that is looking through your own eyes at me in this moment. And how do we do that? And again, whether you take the Buddhist tradition, those very earliest texts the Buddha was going around saying, don't have views, don't cling to teachers or teachings, release everything and live in freedom. It's a beautiful non-dual teaching. It's almost as if people didn't get it. So a little while later he said, all right, there's an eightfold path, there's a four foundations of mindfulness, because you need something systematic. And very much the same is true if you look at Ashtanga Yoga or you look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. He says from the beginning, you know, there are these phrases, yoga is the release from the fluctuations of consciousness, from the small sense of self, the fears and delusions that we get caught up in. Then the seer abides in essence. All right, this is the this is the game. And then he goes on to say, well, that's a nice thing to say. The release from these fluctuations is achieved through practice and discipline or practice and dispassion. That all the practices are used to release us from that delusion or to help us integrate in some way. So within the Buddhist tradition, what you're learning here that's so rich and helpful is the four foundations of mindfulness the mindfulness of body, the mindfulness of feelings. And for that, for tonight, I will also include in feelings then the emotions that are born out of them, the mindfulness of the mind in all the ways that it does, and the mindfulness of the Dharma, the laws and relationships between ourselves and others. Other Buddhist descriptions of the path, dana, sila, bhavana, generosity or service, virtue, and then mental purification, or sila, samadhi, panya, Virtue, uh, quieting or concentrating of the mind, and then deep wisdom. Um, And sila includes um, renunciation, as it is in the Bhagavad Gita. Or the spirit rock mandala that we made to describe our practices here from the Buddhist tradition of um, meditation, of body and feelings and mind, right relationships, retreat practice, service, uh, and community. Um, study, hermitage, these different dimensions. Um, And the reason I like to use the mandala, and this is really something that took a while to learn, is because it turns out that consciousness in one area doesn't necessarily translate to consciousness in another. So you can have an Olympic athlete or a world-class, dazzling yoga asana dude, and I use that word, that gender, um, deliberately, who has the emotional intelligence of a slug, you know, who doesn't really know their feelings or their emotional life at all or their relational capacity. Or you can have a brilliant university professor, Nobel laureate in blah, 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 you know, who doesn't know where to find their body. You understand what I'm saying? Or you can have somebody who has a pretty good sense of their emotions but doesn't live in their body or doesn't know all the stories that they tell that limit their life. And so what it turns out is is that if we are to be free, we both need to know this freedom in ourselves and we need to actually bring attention to the main dimensions of life so that that freedom permeates those dimensions. And it's really why you're here, because you know that asana does this in one dimension, but mindfulness and meditation does it in another dimension, and through it, 
whether it's relationships to oneself or the environment of the world, these things are actually necessary. And otherwise you end up, well, you know, as I said, I know an awful lot of swamis and lamas and mamas and papas and um, half of them have fallen. You all know the stories. Uh, Let's see, where is it here? Dean Allen Jones, the head of the Grace Cathedral, he says, spiritual experiences which are different There's a difference between spiritual states and spiritual traits. Experiences are different than spiritual embodiment. Spiritual experiences often lead to inflation. There's no one more insufferable than someone who thinks they're more enlightened than the others around them without any sense of humor. I do know people who on one level are deeply enlightened and yet they go crazy if they miss a bus. On one level, may may be a saint, and on another level, we're still five years old. That's what keeps us humble. That's what makes religion very funny. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? And how important this is to actually know when you're serving the people that come to you. Because they're not just coming for their asana. They're really coming for their heart. They're coming somehow to be free, even if they don't know that yet, or they don't know those words. And the Bhagavad Gita, um, like the Buddhist practices of sila, samadhi, panya, it has, in practice and discipline, it talks about wakefulness and consciousness in the same way, making things conscious through devotion, through meditation, through selfless service, which is dana, really, devotion, um, through mystical studies, through meditative knowing, much like the Buddhist path, you find the parallels. These are forms of practice that help us step out of the small sense of self and reconnect with that which is infinite or timeless. They're all different forms and many, many beautiful forms. Now, your game is to empower yourself because nobody's going to empower you. The Dalai Lama could come and kiss you on the top of your head in your crown chakra and hug you, and you would be ecstatic. I mean, it is really cool. <laughs> but when, it, when he left, you would be left with a problem, which is yourself. I mean, nobody can bless you to that extent. It will wear off, turns out, pretty much anyway, that way. Your job is to empower yourself, which is to know that you do know what's true. To really come to trust freedom in yourself. To find it and know it. And I would say that you already have it. It's not like you have to look for it somewhere, that it is in you. And when you know it, when you trust it, then you empower your students. which means in another language, hmm, to teach the forms that you do from the place that's looking at what will liberate this being. And knowing that that beings in front of you are ready and ripe for liberation because they too have it within them. They too know it. They're just, they're very close to it and they just need to be reminded. 
So here are some principles to keep in mind for empowering yourself and students. First principle, teach from the deepest truth that you know. Don't be shy about it. And it doesn't mean you have to talk about it all the time. That gets really boring. Um, but it means that, yes, you're teaching asana, or yes, you're teaching some meditation, but remember what it's really for, so that the words and the expression and the movement, all that you do, come from this place of awakening, from your deepest freedom and realization. That's number one. Number two, teach from love. This is the question about pain. Um, teach from the great heart of compassion. And so let me talk some about that. Let me see where I put this. Yeah. When people come to do yoga, just like when they come to meditate, all their stored tension, fears, unfinished business of the heart, hopes, which are worse than fears generally, um, and trauma, they all start to surface. You know this as well as I. All you have to do is, as you did, sit in meditation for a day, and it says, hey, here I am, remember me. And there's so much of it. I mean, I have this woman come on retreat, and, you know, she's too shy to speak. And, and it's been that way since she was a child, and she can't even speak in the group, and she's so ashamed. And can you remember back, I say, to, to a moment when you felt freedom in your life? Just trying to invite that in her, in this little group. Oh, yeah, because uh, she was so criticized by her parents. Yeah, how old are you? Five years old. I'm holding some crayons. I said, wonderful, you could draw a picture. She said, oh, no, no, I can't draw. They'll criticize me so much for what I draw, but I can hold them. That was all she could do. All she could even picture, this woman. So I went out and I bought her a box of crayons. I said, here's some crayons for you. You can do what you like now. And I said, no, hold them. What would you like to do? She closed her eyes again. She said, if I could, I would dance like a fairy princess. So she went out and she danced, and then she brought me a drawing. It was the first drawing she had done. She was 64 years old. You know this. You know exactly what I'm saying. People bring loss, or was that person who asked about loss? Bring grief, bring their need for forgiveness, bring their trauma. And if you haven't studied about trauma, please do it. If I could commend something to you in addition to what you're doing here, it would be Peter Levine's trauma training work. The book is Waking the Tiger. And the somatic experience is the training. You could even just do one part of it. The first year of it's four times a year, or three times a year, four days or something. It's incredibly helpful work to teach how to release trauma from the body because you'll see it all the time. And what it's based on is that you trust the space of knowing. You create the space where people's bodies open, their hearts, their history, their feelings, their mind open, and you trust awareness itself. And if you learn nothing else, when you come here on retreat to sit with us, and this has to do with the question about pain that was asked, is that you learn to trust the space of awareness and the great heart of compassion. Because it's who you are. But until you know it, you're not very good for people. 
So here's a friend who just died of ovarian cancer. She wrote right before she died, my days are short and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the, <clears throat> not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting and every fearful fantasy and every pain and ache I sat through and every itch I didn't scratch was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. So you're really teaching people how to die as well as how to live. And what it means in asana or in meditation, if you do a lot of work pressing people into pain, and I did it as a young man, I mean, I did stuff in the monastery. We had a practice where you would sit, and it was called breaking through a posture, and you would sit for 12 hours or 18 hours or 24 hours and not move or stand. I stood for 18 hours in one place, like those yogis in India that do it for a long time. And your feet swell and your head goes insane and the pain is, is incredible. And then at some point your consciousness flips out of your body and you have this whole other luminous experience from that much pain. That's not very good for training most people in America. <laughs> and mostly they need to approach pain and come back you don't want to make pain too much in yoga. You don't want to hurt your body. But at the same time, in sitting practice, and some in yoga, sometimes you back off because you need to. And sometimes you sit with the pain, not the pain that hurts your body, but the pain that's there so that you don't become afraid of it. So that you know, I can sit with pain. It's pain is pain. Joy and sorrow, pain and loss and beauty and love are part of the tainted glory, to use Oscar Wilde's words, of this mystery of incarnation. And liberation comes when we sit with all of these. People need to know that they can bear their grief. And physical pain is one thing. I think that really it's the, the grief of the heart that's harder. My teacher Ajahn Shah said, if you haven't really wept, you probably haven't meditated so much yet. And in the Lakota Sioux, grief was valued. It brought a person closer to the gods. A person who had suffered a great loss and was grieving, they were considered the most wakan, the most holy. Their prayers were believed to be especially powerful. Others would ask them to pray on their behalf. So you need to learn somehow not to be afraid of the heart pain that people carry or the physical pain, because otherwise you can't sit with somebody who's got cancer or you can't sit in a hospice, or you can't sit, you know, with a woman in labor, or give birth to your own child. Um, and you can't help the culture. I imagine, said James Baldwin, that one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. So it's... It's actually a political act and a planetary act to learn how to bear our measure of sorrows and our measure of joy with dignity and beauty. And we can do it. It's really what we're teaching people. Forget the posture. I mean, you use the posture. It's just a vehicle to teach people dignity, to teach people freedom. Does this make sense to you? Each of your students is the Buddha 
under her or his tree of enlightenment. And Mara is going to appear. Mara is very cool. Mara gets around, right? The minute you do an asana, the minute you take your seat here, Mara says, ding, 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 okay, here I am, right? And appears for you. It's the way that it works. Go ahead. Light your candles. Burn your incense. Ring your bells and call out to the gods. But watch out, because the gods will come. And they will put you on their anvil and fire up their forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. And somebody who comes to see you for practice is saying, I'm ready for something. And it's fine. I mean, it's a really important thing. So you teach from the deepest truth and you teach from love. Oh, there's so many more things I could say. But people come into me and they say, I have so much rage in me that's coming up or so much grief, I don't think I could bear it. I say, well, you know, I mean, this is, I don't mean to be flippant about it. And we take our time and make safe space and give them, if it's overwhelming, give them resources so they don't get overwhelmed. But when they're ready, I get curious. Well, how big is the grief? Is it a lake? Oh, it's an ocean. The Buddhists spoke of the grief as the tears greater than the four great oceans. Tell me about the ocean of your grief. Dance it, show it to me. Rage, how big is it? Oh, that's interesting. Big as a, you know, a tornado? Oh no, it's nuclear, to use a word, right? Well, all right, sit with that. Can you sit with Mara appearing with all his or her armies? And underneath this is the trust that you have in the space of awareness itself, like the great mirror that it is of consciousness, which holds all things and can allow them. And out of that comes healing and freedom. Teach from the deepest truth. Teach from love. And the love means that you can open to anything. Teach from the great heart of compassion. There's stories I want to tell, but I see that I don't have time. Tell them that they already know. You know, it's kind of a cheap trick. I'm being flipped tonight, I can't help it, I'm sorry. It's kind of a cheap trick to pretend that enlightenment is someplace else. You know, and it is good for sales, you know, it is, but it's not true in the fundamental, and this kind of dualistic way it's out there and stuff, Buddhism, Hinduism, Kabbalah, you know, everybody uses that in some way, partly because a lot of people still believe it and so forth, but the truth is that they already do know, they are already whole. And when you know this, when you know in this yourself, then the field with which you teach will be filled with that realization. So yoga isn't to do anything. I mean, I'm a bad Hatha yogi. I don't particularly care either, (laughs) which means I'm very free in some way. It'd be nice to be a little better Hatha yogi, I'll tell you, but that's not the point, you know, because I'm going to get really old. And yes, there are a few really old Hatha yogis who can still do all their asana and stuff. It doesn't mean that they're nicer people. Some of them could be grouchy old flexible guys, you know. (laughs) You've seen them, you know. Tell them that they already know and that what they're doing in yoga is returning to what they know. And then the fourth thing is that the discipline that they use, that you use, of yoga, of meditation, and so forth, is not in order to get something, 
The discipline is an expression of love. It's an expression of reverence for life. It's an expression of the union of what they already have. And you do it by repetition. Yes, you know it. And by repeating it, it kind of helps you dwell in what you know. Gandhi called it blessed monotony, where you do it over and over and over until it becomes... Neuroscience talks about it. You grow new neurons. It really changes your whole body. And Julia Childs puts it this way. She said, when you're in the kitchen and you drop the lamb, you can always just pick it up. Who's going to know? Right? This is the meditation instruction from Julia Child. You make a mistake in your asana, your mind judges, it goes off. doesn't matter. You come back. The point isn't to be perfect. The point is to let your practice be an expression of reverence and love, whatever form you're doing, an expression of this awakened heart. And then you have these different practices. You need to have some practice, most people in this crazy culture, to quiet the mind and body and open the heart and see who you are. So the quieting the mind and body is one of the many samadhi practices of learning some way of stilling yourself. And samadhi, as Philip talks about, is really about calming. It's just being present. They're all different, a hundred ways. I, I mean, I, I've practiced dozens and dozens of ways of quieting the mind and body. There's a purification because as soon as you start to quiet, your body's tension shows itself, you know, and the energies aren't very well regulated and then your mind goes whizzing around and it's crazy. That's called purification. It just means you sit with it and work with it or stretch with it until the mind and body start to get more unified. And it's not like a state that you hold on to. It's more like taking a shower. It's a kind of cleaning of yourself so you're more open. And with that concentration or presence, Sometimes you get yogic states, and I've done a lot of yogic states, jhanas and lights and stuff like that, and they're really cool. And they, what they do more than anything is they reaffirm that you know. That's all. And then they're gone. But they say, okay, I do know. I did that. That's cool. But here you are, you know. Dad, my daughter says, I think it's time for you to go and meditate, you know, when we're having a hard time. <laughs> or you can do what's called in Buddhism kanika samadhi. Mahasi Sayadaw's expertise. Suzuki Roshi says that when you realize the fact that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. Or Ajahn Buddha Dasa who speaks of um, nirvana as an everyday experience when we understand it. And it's not slighting or diminishing liberation. It's saying that when we rest in the reality of the present, in the space of awareness, mindfulness itself is the gateway to that which is timeless, to the pure consciousness. And it's always here, and we know it. And so you use practices to quiet the mind and body and to open the heart. Practices of metta and devotion and tenderness and compassion and the wonderful practices of forgiveness. If I could teach you that tonight, I would love to, but... You will get that. And then what comes as you quiet the body and mind and open the heart is the different facets of enlightenment. And here's what confuses people some. Enlightenment, and I don't use that word very often because it's been so misunderstood. 
Enlightenment inwardly experience is like a jewel that has many facets. And depending how you experience it in a certain moment, consciousness, awakened, free, liberated, enlightened consciousness, that's what I'm talking about. Enlightenment is experienced as silence, profound stillness. You turn the crystal another facet and it's experienced as freedom, complete freedom. Turn the crystal another facet and it's experienced as love. Everything is love. Turn it another little bit and it's experienced as luminosity. Everything is light. Turn it another way and it's complete emptiness. Everything comes out of the void, disappears. It's empty even as it appears. Another moment and it's fullness. Kala Rinpoche the Great, Tibetan Lama, said you live in the illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So those are two other, two of those aspects of the crystal. You are nothing and you are everything. And the problem is that sometimes people have one or another experience, a facet of this awakened consciousness, and they, then they get on their horse and they say, I have it, enlightenment is luminosity, or enlightenment is emptiness. No, 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 enlightenment is fullness. And they make a whole big school out of it, you know. And then they go and get their lance and do battle with somebody who has a school of some other name of enlightenment because they didn't look into the other facets of the crystal. Does this make sense to you? When really meditation and yoga and all the things we're doing the closest thing to it, it's not like most other things in the world, the true practice is like making music. The point when you make music isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. If that were so, the fastest musicians would be the best, right? Okay, got through that one, now let me get on to the next one. It's not to get somewhere. The point in music is to be in harmony with the dance of music of life. And the point of yoga or meditation or all these things is to learn in embodiment, to be in harmony with life from the place of the deepest freedom and the great heart of compassion. And then you do your practice, as I do, not to get anywhere, because that's really boring. That's a pretty small story, actually. And very painful to keep trying to get somewhere, especially since you're already here in the present. You do it like brushing your teeth because it helps keep your body and mind, heart clear and open so you can stay in touch with who you are. Now there's a chapter in my book, Path with Heart, on spiritual maturity that if I could commend one of the chapters to you from this night's talk, it would be that. I think it's like chapter 21 and it has the, the qualities of spiritual maturity and if you would look at it, it might be something actually to give to them you know, patience, immediacy, ability to hold the paradox of the world, um, embodiment, flexibility, uh, compassion. Then you start to see it's not, enlightenment isn't about someplace else, it's about the manifestation of this inner freedom and this mystery that we're in. A poem from Mary Oliver, if I can find it here. Just two lines. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. 
If you could do that with your students, that would be really pretty wild. For years and years, I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind, comma. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And this is like T.S. Eliot's lines, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still even among these rocks. That there's a place of wisdom that knows that life is completely precious and sacred in every moment and every being is totally worthy of our reverence. And at the same time, as Krishna is saying to Arjuna, it is also the dance of consciousness. Don't love your life too much. Hold it lightly, dance with it. And there's this amazing kind of wisdom that comes that has humility and graciousness and ease and self-knowledge and flexibility and patience. If somebody's patient and humble and has some real kindness and is gracious with things and so forth, you're talking a beautiful consciousness, a liberated consciousness. Forget what kind of yogic postures or states or meditative attainments that they might have. A single garment of destiny we are woven in. And our garment now asks of us this awakening. So I have to stop here. I have so much more I could say to you. Um, but I want us to do a practice and then we'll have some dialogue. And we're going to go a little bit past nine. Is that okay? We're on retreat there. You've got nowhere to go, right? <laughs> Plus which when you have the microphone, you know. They can yank the cord at some point. But. Okay, so you have learned about the Brahma Viharas yet, somehow? Have they? Last time. Last time? The four? Hmm? They learned metta. So one of the Buddhist expressions of, oh, of the awakened heart and mind, awakened body, heart, and mind, we'll say. Although let's not be too serious about the body. I have to stop you for a second here. When you look in the mirror, you notice that you're older, right? Hmm? Everybody notice that? The weird thing is you don't feel older. True? You know why that is? Because it's only your body that's older. And the moment you look in the mirror is also a moment when you look with those eyes that remembers, oh yeah, look at that, this vehicle, this incarnation. It's getting older, isn't it? That one who knows, says, oh yeah, look at the body, knows that the body is precious and it's your vehicle, but it's, it's just your vehicle. It's not who you are. Who you are, Thomas Merton said, is the secret beauty that you see behind these eyes. That if you could only see, it's like the namaste, if you could see who you, who's in front of you, he said you would fall down and worship every person you met. So the Brahma Viharas are um, one description of our inner awakening, the heart description. Um, and this description has four qualities. The fourth of them is peace. When the, when the awakened consciousness opens in us and we touch it, it is absolutely still, silent, peaceful. That's equanimity, perfect balance. When it comes into relationship with other beings, there arises as well the sense of connectedness which we call love. Love is like gravity. It's just there between all things. When love 
meets pain, it turns into compassion, which is a different quality. You'll see when we do this practice. And when love meets happiness, it turns into mudita, it's called in Sanskrit, which is this joy in the happiness of life itself. So the heart's peaceful, it's also filled with love, and that love manifests in different ways depending what it encounters. And this is the awakened heart, love, compassion, joy, and peace or equanimity. So I'd like you to find a partner. This is a paired meditation. Someone. And if you don't have a partner, stand up with your arm, raise your arm and stand up and turn around in a circle. Who else doesn't have a partner? Stand up, raise your hand, turn around in a circle. There's two. Okay, there's one person up here. Somebody else not have a partner in this room? Yes, and someone in front? Good, perfect. Would you look up front there? There you go. Now, this is not an easy practice, but your teachers. Right? And so we're going to do a, uh, it's about 10 minutes. We'll do a short version of it, and then we'll, then we'll have a bit of dialogue. This, is, this practice is a guided meditation to take us through these four Brahma-viharas, or these four, um, they're translated as, the, you know, the awakened heart, the divine abodes, there are all kinds of translations for them, the four immeasurables of what they're called in, in Tibetan Buddhism. I just like to call them the awakened heart. So let yourself relax for a second, quietly, and take a couple of deep breaths. Center yourself and exhale any tension that you have. And now let yourself look into each other's eyes. And if you feel discomfort or an urge to laugh or look away, just note this embarrassment with patience and gentleness and come back when you can to your partner's eyes. For you may never see this person again. You don't know in this great mystery. And the opportunity to behold the uniqueness of this particular human being is given to you now. As you look into this person's eyes, let yourself become aware of the beauty that is there. Another being with a beautiful spirit and an exquisite heart. Open your awareness to the gifts and strengths that are there. Behind these eyes are unmeasured reserves of courage and intelligence of patience, endurance, wisdom, and wit. There are gifts here of which this person themselves may be unaware, beautiful gifts that if they brought forth would be a blessing for this earth. As you see them deeply, imagine if they were your own child, 
how you would wish them well, safe from harm. Imagine them wanting their success, free from all difficulty and pain, and how you would want their beauty and well-being to blossom. And know that what you are now experiencing is the great heart of loving kindness. This is natural to us. Now continue to look and take a deep breath and release the loving kindness so that you can look again more deeply into these eyes. And now as you look, let yourself become aware of the measure of pain that is there. There are sorrows accumulated in this life as in all human lives that you could only guess at. There are disappointments and failures losses and loneliness, hurts beyond the telling. Let yourself open to their pain, to the hurts that this person may never have told another human being. You cannot fix their pain, but you can be with it. And as you let yourself simply be with a spirit of courage in the face of their suffering, you can picture them also as if they were your child or someone's child, hurt, frightened, how you would want to respond and reach out to comfort. And know that what you are experiencing now is the great heart of compassion. It is essential for the healing of the world. So much courage and compassion in us. And continuing to look, now let yourself take another deep breath or two with eyes open. And as best you can, let the compassion and the view of sorrow drop away. And look again anew, deeply in these eyes. And now let yourself see the happiest moments of their life that are also reflected there. Their best adventure as a young child, the creative force in them, the humor and delight the laughter and zest within the spirit. And picture them celebrating success, taking risks, dancing in all the difficulties of the world with joy, overcoming obstacles, triumphing 
and bringing their joyful spirit and creativity fully alive. And as you see their joyful spirit, know that what you are opening to is a great treasure, the pleasure in one another's happiness known as mudita, the joy in the joy of another, the joy in life itself. And now continuing to look, take one more deep breath for the last of these and release what you've seen of joy and become still as you look. And let your awareness drop deep like a stone sinking into the depths, to the deep web of connectedness that underlies all of life into which you have taken birth. Look and see the consciousness behind these eyes, as if seeing the face of one who at another time and place was young or old, awake or asleep lost and liberated. How this being at another time and place was your son or daughter, your parent, as if they were at another time your partner your friend, your enemy, your student, your teacher. And now you meet on the brink of eternity and know that your lives are interwoven in a net of connectedness, a web of consciousness from which you can never fall. Rest in it, trust it. Rest in the knowing and the great peace. It is your home. And ask yourself, who am I really? Who is it that is seeing? And who is being seen? Beyond this body, beyond the thoughts and the small sense of self, rest in consciousness itself, the great space of awareness. Trust it. Relax into it. It is your home. And know that what you are experiencing now 
is called by many names, equanimity, peace, oneness. Trust it. And let yourself stay with this knowing even as you hear the bells. And take whatever few moments time for whatever reflection or connection with your partner you wish to make. Turns out you often don't need to say too much because you've already said it. Hmm. We could go into a sit, but we're not going to. We could, I mean, this would be a beautiful place to sit from, but I promised them that I would do a few questions and I want to fulfill that, even though it is, this would be a gorgeous place to sit from, yeah, and really stay with. You could close your eyes for a couple minutes, honor this.
there's a beautiful stillness in the room, as you said. It's really lovely. We could well sit for a while. Um, but what I'd like to propose, it's now just before nine, is that we do 10 or 15 minutes of dialogue or questions and then see where we are. Is that okay with you? Can you still go a little longer? If somebody has to run out to pee or something, feel free, it's okay. So I'm interested in comments, questions on the things that I've talked about or on this practice that we did together, which was really a practice of reminder of just what the theme of that conversation was. Yes, please. I don't want to get emotional and ask any questions. Oh, emotions are fine. What, what's the question? Um, I have heard many, and I use the word competent in a respectful sense, competent asana teachers and meditation teachers who speak as you have done now and on many other instances when I've heard you with ease. Hmm. Uh, I was in my yoga teacher teacher training program and at the end I played what was played here last time, the chant of Metta. Mm -hmm. These people had never heard it any more than I had heard it before last time. Mm. And I was just going to say a few words what the first few lines meant. The music was playing and immediately I was overcome and couldn't say anything. Hmm. Um, I am sometimes in a position where I want to give you, I'm taking you at your word, Jeff. Teach from the deepest truth that you know. Hmm. I have all these little notebooks and I go back and I review them and internalize them. They are part of me hmm. inside. This is a sticking point for me to strike a balance, and I think it's probably for many, to strike a balance between what you do deeply feel and a certain element of restraint in your heart and mouth. Oh, it's a beautiful question. Balance. One of the things I love most about, I've worked with the Dalai Lama at different times over the years, he weeps a lot. And, you know, he laughs a lot too. Um, I'm afraid that the world doesn't have enough tears, certainly our culture. and that even if someone were to get on television as one of our leaders and say, we're going to go to war, if they're not weeping while they do it, it's um, criminal in some way. So you tell your group sometimes, I feel so much that I can hardly give word and I'll sit in silence till the words come. Or sometimes when I work with you, I feel so touched by metta that I'll weep and you're welcome to weep with me. How's Do I find in time it cools? <laughs> Do you have a problem with it? I don't know. I mean, I work the other way. I work to have feeling so that I'm present with my body, but also present with emotions. So I'm hearing you, yeah, I'm hearing you saying um, you're flooded and you wish it weren't so much. Sometimes you do. Hey, honey, it's great. <laughs> And you're fine. You're completely wonderful. Teach from who you are. I really mean it. I feel like a sap. 
Please. Thank you so much. Please. Um, oh, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, where do you live? Berkeley. Where? New Jersey. New Jersey. Um, do um, volunteer at a hospice for six months or a year. You would learn as much about that as any asana, any ashram or Buddhist temple could teach you. A little easier than. My condolences. Right. No, I'm serious. What, why? Well, if you're a psychologist, what makes you ask that? Let's. Um, you got me there a lot, but I can't sit with somebody with cancer. You, uh, I, you, you're asking me the question. I'm giving you a serious answer. There's um, because you want this, not you know. You're the one that asked the question, and you are a psychologist, and so um, you're a healer. And in a way, that's a beautiful thing. I'm quite serious. You would be able to do, if you were in San Francisco, I'd say do Zen Center Hospice, but there's all kinds of great hospice programs. They don't take, I mean, they don't take over your life, but there's something that you do. They're an amazing thing to do. So, yeah. I mean, it's not the only way, but you asked for how one could do it, and that's a way. Let me know how it goes. <laughs> Either that or have triplets or something. It's okay. <laughs> what? You couldn't have kids. Yeah. But you could. I mean, I don't know about having kids, but although you probably could. But trust that you can do more. Trust, trust yourself. You can. Yes, please. Somebody had their hand up. Um, what makes you ask? Well, have I changed in my life? What, what, in what way? I'm not quite understanding. Um, a person who, who was very violent towards me. Toward you? Is it somebody you lived with? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, because I needed to know that part. I, and just pedagogically, again, you know, when I talk about stepping back for a second, one of the best things you can do is when someone asks you a question, one of the very best things you can do is say, what makes you ask? Because somebody would say, tell me about karma, and you'd launch into some whole huge thing about karma. But if you say, what makes you ask? They say, well, my daughter just died, you know, or my father lost all his money, or I was in India and this happened to me. Or, and you would have completely different, or it's the, my best friend just won the lottery, 
you would have completely different understandings of what they needed when you say what makes you ask. You understand this? So you really want to know that and you want it personal. Um, that's a really hard thing and a fierce thing. Um, I don't know what to say to you because I don't really know the circumstance, but I had um, a violent and abusive father where I couldn't leave and it took me years of learning to do releasing of trauma and rage and inner practices of forgiveness to come to peace with him. But if it was a relationship where I was an adult, I would probably say leave. You left. Yeah. Ah, okay. So this is more than a question about forgiveness. Here's somebody who's harmed you in some terrible way, sometimes almost unforgivable. And how does one learn forgiveness? Beautiful and deep question. Um, it's a process and a practice, both. One of the books I've written, which they have here, is called the art, a little book called The Art of Forgiveness, Loving Kindness and Peace. And in other books too I have forgive, the Buddhist forgiveness practice. Um, and you need to know a few simple things about forgiveness. First, it's, you can't do it quickly, you can't paper it over. Um, sometimes in the process of forgiveness it brings up its opposite. You feel how much bitterness or rage or, or hurt is there. And fundamentally it's not for that other person, as you know, it's for yourself. You know, I mean, he could be in the Bahamas having a great vacation and you're there saying, I hate him, I hate him, I hate him, and who's suffering? It's like those two ex-prisoners of war who meet years later and say, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the second one says, no, never. And the first one says, well, then they still have you in prison, don't they? So it's really the work of your own heart to do it. Um, take that practice. When I learned forgiveness practice, the teacher who taught it to me said, do it a couple times a day, you know, for five minutes or something, um, and uh, let me know how it's going in like six months, which was to say, do it 300 times. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes it brings up your opposite. It's opposite, you hate that person, I'll never forget, I'm going to kill him, you know, all this stuff. And you just do it over and over, and after a while, you start to realize, it's so much work hating this person, and it hurts so much. <laughs> You know, even this person, I'm going to forgive just because I need to get on with my life. So when we talk about release through discipline or training, it turns out to be a heart practice. These metta, compassion, these things also have systematic trainings and practices. And there are all kinds of other ways. I mean, one of the things I do when I work with people is say, write it. Put at the top of the page the name of that person and write them a letter that says everything you ever could imagine saying to them. You don't have to send it, but write it all. And take a week or two weeks to write it, add more stuff, and not only that, I hated this, and, blah, 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 and then just really let it come out and see what happens. Which is, because forgiveness is also about grieving and learning how to grieve the suffering that you have. And in doing so, then in grieving honorably, you, you naturally find yourself able to move on. I don't know if this is helpful, but I hope so. Yes, please. That's sort of an issue for me. I'm, I've always been curious. Um, wouldn't it be better to just like give something to 
Catharsis. I myself have been tempted at times, yes. Turns out it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can, you, these, are, these are the great human questions. Because um, if you do retaliate in some way or other, and it, to know that you want to retaliate is a very helpful thing. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, my God, I feel so terrible. I was married for all this time, and this woman, you know, had an affair and dumped me and she treated me terribly and now she's trying to take all the money or this guy, it doesn't matter what she, you know, and I look at them and, and, she, and they say, I want to forgive and do you have any suggestions? And I look them in the eye and I say, yeah, revenge. <laughs> and the minute I say it, there comes this laughter and a certain kind of excitement because they've already been thinking about that, right? <laughs> and then I say, you think about it, but that's not really where you want to go. So the first thing is to know that that's natural, what you're saying but that if you actually follow it, you get the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Hutus and the Tutsis and the Bosnians and the Serbs and the Croats, and it goes cyclically, because as you take revenge, then someone else will, and it creates that pattern. Um, and then they still have you in prison. So there are other ways, and it's really for your own heart's sake. Um, forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past, someone said. It's what it is. It's a certain suffering, sometimes great, that you have to bear. Other people have had to bear suffering, and you can then work with it and move on. All right. Um, last quick question. I just wondered Yeah. It's, uh, it's not on my regular CDs, and there are places that it's written out and so forth. Oh, it's on the tape from tonight. Okay, so it is, it will be, it was taped. Hmm. I would also say, I mean, I don't know, I know in the protocol of this that you have come to some mindfulness meditation retreats, and by the end of this you will have done, along with the program itself, at least a couple of 10-day retreats or something like that. Is that correct? Three. Um, I encourage you to do that part of your practice and maybe even more of it because of the kinds of questions that you're raising, which are so good and deep. How do I work with the lack of forgiveness or the suffering that you know I have to bear? How do I work with pain in an honorable way that's neither denying it nor, on the other hand, getting all caught up in it or... Um, some of the other really important questions. How do I work with emotions? And it's through the practice that you devote yourself to, um, like that letter I read from the woman who just died of cancer. It is there that you learn the art of bearing witness, of holding the whole of your humanity with a great compassionate heart. It's, it's a way that you learn that and then what you have to give and offer your students. So um, let's just sit quietly for one minute. Just, uh, oh, I, oh, oh, five minutes. Actually, I have, I have an announcement to make, and then we'll sit for five minutes. And that is, it's, um, I brought some flyers to put out, because um, I've been very much involved in Burma relief. Um, and a lot in the news is that there's no way to get aid into these two million people who lost their homes and so forth. 
and there is the foundation and group that I'm working with has three or four hundred people in the Irrawaddy Delta now doing amazing stuff of rebuilding schools and bringing in food and so forth. So anyone interested, um, there'll be some flyers out and a, a letter about it that's signed by Ram Dass and Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and myself. Or you can put them out at the end of the retreat. But there's one other thing. I'm also, I know yoga teachers are poor, but there might be a couple of exceptions in the room. Um, and I'm leading, I've never led a trip to Asia in my whole life, but I'm leading a trip to Burma this winter for a dozen people um, to go to some of the best monasteries and teachers and also to do some service work. Um, uh, and um, I'm asking for those who, who want to do it and who can, that people who come make a $20,000 donation to the, to the Foundation for the People of Burma along with going on the trip. And I think we can raise a quarter of a million dollars and rebuild 20 schools and a dozen clinics and so forth. So if anyone happens to be interested and have that capacity, come up to me afterward and I'll give you some information on it. So why don't you stand up for a second and stretch and then we'll sit. Diana, you have the money? I'm so surprised. Thank you. Just feel how your body wants to stretch before we sit. We've been sitting for a while. yourself sit back down. And let yourself rest in the space of awareness. Which you notice how the breath breathes itself. Or how sensations, feelings, and moods rise and fall like waves of the ocean within the space of awareness. Relax into it. Rest in the reality of the present.
so we'll see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. Thank you. Really a pleasure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.